Hi everyone, I'm Jason Rosewell, over there is Skyhawk Heavy, and that makes this Flightcast, the Infinite Flight Podcast. Mark, uh, as this episode airs, there may or may not be a new airplane available to Android users, which will also be soon available to Apple users. Uh, the long-awaited turboprop, the Dash 8 Q400. Uh, I know you've been flying it for a little while now, so why don't you give us your thoughts? Well, you know, I've been looking forward to having a turboprop in the in the sim for quite some time, and I've uh, I've been real pleased with with flying the uh, bracket 737 BBJ. <laughs> That's right. That's what people will see you flying as. Um, this, well, you know what? We'll talk about the Dash 8 a little bit more, but uh, for now, why don't we get to our uh, special guest today? Uh, today is a continuation of our real-world pilot series as we talk all about turboprops. To help us do that, I've invited a regular in the Infinite Flight community. You all know him as Heavy Driver. Joining me from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, is the always outspoken 777 First Officer and former ATR-72 pilot, Melvin. Melvin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jason, and uh, Skyhawk Heavy. It's always a pleasure to see you as well. Thanks for being here. Um, yeah. Let's let's first start off with uh, the thing that we all want to know of our uh, real-world pilots, and that is, what's your background with aviation, and uh, how did you get started flying? Well, my uh, my background with aviation is I am a uh, fully rated airline transport pilot, or uh, ATP, as they say for short. I am currently 777 type rated. I am type rated in the ATR 4272, as well as all the CRJ series, and I have also flown the Pilatus PC-12 which is a favorite of Matt LeBlanc, and also the King Air uh, C-90. Uh, how I got started in flying, I was very fortunate as a child. My parents were part of a ski group, and we were headed to a ski function in Salt Lake City when I was three years old. Um, back then, we were talking about 1987, you could uh, actually walk up to the cockpit. Uh, the security measures in the 80s were not such that they are now after 9-11, where we live in an environment where, unfortunately, uh, terroristic threats are a great possibility. But um, I was three years old, looking out the window, and like any parent, uh, the flight attendant stopped by and asked if I would like to go up to the cockpit. And willingly, my parents were like, hey, we get a break for a couple hours, (laughs) and up to the cockpit. So... um, I believe it was a DC-10 we were flying on back then. And once I got to the cockpit, I was just immersed in what now is aviation today. But I was just a kid in a candy shop. You couldn't find me away from the controls until descent. And so ever since then, I've gone to uh, air shows growing up. I kept kept researching aviation and uh, building model airplanes and flying model airplanes. My parents took me more seriously when I was in high school and allowed me to get my private uh, pilot license before attending college. Uh, I attended college and did four years, did my four-year degree, and also obtained the rest of my ratings, including all the instructor licenses that uh, that are out there, including both the advanced ground instructor and the instrument ground instructor. Um, and then in 2008, 
I obtained my first job flying in the Midwest for Air Am- Air Ambulance Corporation. We would fly sick patients from very rural com- communities into major cities such as Kansas City or Wichita, Kansas. And after that, I went to work for the airlines, which is where I'll stop because that gets into our next question. Wow. Um, <laughs> the, when you say immersed, you're not joking. I mean, that's... that's uh, I'm... I'm hearing all of this and I'm thinking, yeah, I'm a, I'm a, a an enthusiast who would love to be a pilot, uh, which I will do someday. Mark is a pilot, but you, you really truly immersed yourself in aviation. Do you still love it? I still love it. Um, I never go to work essentially because when I go to work, I'm doing what I love to do. So no matter what you do, whether it's flying an airplane or whether it's being a doctor, just, Love what you do for a living, and it'll never be a job. That is great advice. Uh, and you and shouldn't I'm... be so surprised that he was—he's been so immersed and so elaborate with aviation. I mean, you've seen him post on IFFG. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The man loves what he does. That's for sure. Okay, so you—you uh, you did have a nice segue into the next question. So the ATR seventy-two. You didn't. You mentioned that that wasn't the the only ATR that you were flying. Um, but that's not an airplane that you see a lot these days. So how did you end up working on it? Uh, when I first started working for American Eagle in twenty ten, so after flying for corporate a little bit. I was fortunate enough to be hired for American Eagle Airlines, which flew for pairing company, American Airlines. Um, it was the only wholly owned subsidiary of American Airlines at the time, pre-American U.S. Air merger. Um, <clears throat> me and actually one of my really good best friends, uh, Justin, were kind of a test initial cadre for their new hiring segment that they were doing at the time. As we all know, 2008 was 2008 to 2010 was not a, a good time in the aviation sector or really any sector uh, of the economy for the U.S. Yeah. So there was a lot of downturn. There was a lot of furloughs that happened with the airlines. And in 2010, the airlines started hiring again. So Justin and I were the first two guys to get hired with American Eagle in 2010 in the March class. And... As an initial cadre for the new ATR training program, they stuck us in it. And so initially we were, I don't want to say let down or or, uh, upset, but we are kind of confused because we were expecting to go fly the ERJ-145. However, I will say that we had a blast. We were on ATR-72. We were going to be based in San Juan, which as most know, is a vacation destination, so that's where my ATR days started. So, uh, was this your first uh, turboprop that you had flown? It was not my first turboprop. I had flown the Pilatus PC-12 and also the King Air C-90 prior, so I had a little bit of experience prior to coming to the ATR, but the ATR-72 is like no other turboprop I've ever flown. Okay, so that that's interesting. Let let's um let's talk about that a little bit. You are um you're familiar with the the Dash 8, which is what the the airplane that we're all really excited about. Uh and 
is coming down the pipe for us really soon here on Infinite Flight. So can we, I think I'm skipping ahead a little bit here in my questioning, but can we, can we, can you easily draw some parallels between the Dash 8 and the ATR-72 uh, or any other version based on either your experience or, or friend's experience? Um, how can you link the two together? Definitely, definitely. Um, the ATR and the Dash are very similar. Uh, both of them, little it be known, are the only two turboprops that are considered heavy turboprops. Uh, they're both over 50,000 pounds max takeoff weight, which um, is, is a huge deal because most turboprops, such as your Saab 340 or uh, most of your Kenyers and your Pilatuses, they're somewhere in the 20,000 pound range and under. Um, in terms of controllability, being an ATR pilot, especially flying in the islands, we always were jealous of the Dash 8s. Um, we always will park next to the Dash 8 100s and 200s um, down in the Caribbean. Dash 8 has a APU, uh, which has no functionality in infinite flight, but plays a big role in terms of keeping the pneumatics working when it's hot outside or when it's cold outside, so you never come to a uncomfortable airplane, so to speak. Mm. Um, the Dash 8 has a very wide landing gear, so in crosswinds, as you know, as you've experienced in uh, infinite flight, crosswinds can be very tricky, uh, so to speak, when it comes to landing and takeoff. On the ATR, the ATR is very, very hard to land in a crosswind because it has such a narrow wheelbase. The Dash 8 has more of a wider wheelbase, okay. um, but they're both the same length, uh, technically. So in terms of uh, crosswind controllability, they both can be very tricky. And that's that uh, would be due both. to the fact that the the ATR has the landing gear um, built into the fuselage, whereas the Dash 8's got the landing gear um, in the engine, basically, right? That is very correct. That is very correct. Um, they both use the same type of instrumentation. They both use torque. They use uh, NH and NP. Your NH is your uh, high temperature hot section of the engine, and your NP would be your propeller uh, RPM. And then your uh, your torque is going to be exactly that. It's going to be the torque of the engine. Um, they're both loud, you know, so to speak, compared to a jet. But uh, we could talk about that a little bit more uh, later in depth. Okay. Yeah, well, actually, in my next question... Um... We, we do want to talk more about jets with you, and I'm actually, if it's okay, I'm going to bring you back uh, for another chat, um, because your the your current aircraft is the Boeing 777, uh, which I'm excited to actually do, because I haven't talked to any other current Boeing pilots yet. Um, you might remember uh, I had a chat with uh, our buddy Jared, and uh, Jared has flown Boeing airplanes, but he's currently uh, on an Airbus. So for now, let's tell, uh, why don't you tell us some things that you loved about flying a turboprop? Cause you did mention that you had a blast. So, uh, let's hear about that. What I loved about flying a turboprop, surprisingly, they are very quiet. Um, they fly like a truck. So if you can imagine most of the time when you're flying a 172, um, at Skyhawk heavy nose, or if you're flying uh, like a Cessna 310, 
the controls are very, very heavy in terms of when you pull back to pitch up, it's almost like you're pulling against resistant bands because there are bells, cranks, and cables that run along the fuselage of the airplane in order to control the control surfaces. Um, with the ATR or a Dash 8, you are dealing with the same thing. There's no fly-by-wire flight controls, meaning that there's no hydraulically assisted, in a technical term, uh, flight controls. Even in the Q400? The Q400 does have some, and the ATR has very limited in terms of okay. there are spoilers and spoiler lines that are hydraulically assisted, but for the most part, most of your flight controls are uh, still belt pulled cranks and cables. The Q400 being a more modern airplane, especially modeled as the turbo pop version of the CRJ700, has a lot more hydraulically assisted, but uh, being that I haven't flown the Q400, I can't get into in-depth about the flight controls about it. Sure, fair enough. It's probably uh, the best way to help people to understand what he's talking about is it's like comparing in a vehicle when you're driving power steering versus a vehicle with no power steering. Mm. Exactly. That's what he's talking about when you when he's saying heavy. It's just sometimes you have to muscle uh, the controls a little bit. <laughs> Which, for most of the 12 to 25-year-old people listening to this podcast will mean absolutely nothing. But... <laughs> well, the 12 to 15-year-olds, you know, they got the little steering wheel on the booster seat and all that, so... <laughs> That's true. Just bomb around the bomb around the piggly wiggly in the shopping cart with the steering wheel, and you get the idea. That's it. There That's you go. The, uh, the other nice part uh, to answer your question, Jason, there is that the turtle props you can fly them faster, longer. So uh, one of my most memorable times on ATR, we were flying into Dallas, and we were on our way back from Amarillo, uh, northeast Texas, northwest Texas, rather. Um, but we were on final for one three right, flying into Dallas, and there was a seven five in front of us, and we were all of two hundred and fifty knots, and the seven five was, as we see on instrument flight a lot, going one hundred and sixty knots. So tower was not begging us, but asking us in a very nice way, could we slow down? So we it was our last leg of the day both the captain and i were commuters so we wanted to get home so we slowed to 230 knots thinking that we were slowing down and we ended up having to go around because we were just eating this seven five up and you know for a turboprop pilot to overtake a jet it's kind of like a badge of honor like hey you know we we can go faster longer we can get the job done um they really don't understand the magnitude of why the jet has to slow down until you get to that stage and you're like, oh, okay, I understand now. But uh, that was one of the cool things was that we could fly fast. We could get the airplane slow within a matter of, you know, two minutes versus the typical jet takes up to 10 minutes to really slow down and get your figure for landing. Mm, and that's okay. with spoilers. That's true. With an air brake deployed. Right, so um, the we, we know... Uh, from a little bit of research on the Dash 8 so far that there are no in-flight spoilers. Um, is that the case as well with the ATR that you were flying? That is correct. Um, there's no need for spoilers. When you go to, when you go to flight idle, meaning that you bring your 
thrust levers or prop levers and uh, as well in the dash aid and the ATR, when you bring them to the idle position, the props actually go to a flat position. So they become like a big air brake in the air. Oh, gotcha. Okay. I would talk more about that, but it gets really aerodynamic and it probably would take a while to uh, explain. That's okay. Maybe we can save that for the, for the next time. Okay. Uh, so... Uh, Mark, you and I were talking a little bit uh, at one point, I, I don't remember, it was a few weeks ago, about um, sort of the jet versus, uh, you know, flying the jet versus the uh, prop airplane in infinite flight. And me not being a pilot, um, yeah, I know you have to very gently explain some things to me. Um, and I emphasize the, the word gently. you like pictures and stuff like that <laughs> yeah, drawings um, but you, we were talking about uh, the high wing uh, and and I'm probably not using the right terminology here but um, the higher wing uh, affecting you know when the airplane goes into ground effect um, and so I mean that ties into aerodynamics and stuff too um, Mark refresh my memory what were we talking about I'm still trying to remember okay um, so well, let's just go to let's just go to Melvin then. I didn't prepare Mark for that question. Um, so, is that something to take into consideration? Because I'm assuming that the wings on these big airliners have a lot to do with with when the aircraft is in ground effect. Um, but then you've got these wings on the ATR and the Q400 that are way up high. Um, does that play into things at all? Uh, yes and no. Uh, ground effect is pretty constant from airplane to airplane. Uh, ground effect is usually half your wingspan. So if you have a 100-foot wingspan at 50 feet, essentially you're going to begin to enter into ground effect. Um, what I will say about the higher-wing airplane is that it's more susceptible to wind. So if it's a windy day, uh, whether it's crosswind or headwind, you're more likely to feel the effects of the wind. Uh, versus the swept wing airplane, which are built for speed. Mm, okay, gotcha. So more weather vaning really is uh, okay. going to take place with the prop. Because the, with the uh, higher wing, rather. The higher wing airplane uh, has greater lift potential when it comes to slower speeds, versus the swept wing is obviously built for uh, fast flight at higher altitudes. So when you get into ground effect, if it is a windy day and you don't, uh, keep enough power or speed when you're coming in, your lifting capability pretty much diminishes. So the swept wing will uh, stop flying, in essence, before the uh, straight wing, higher wing will. So it's a little bit more of a pressure when you're landing. Probably why you, uh, that would be why you would have the forged slats on, say, uh, a jetliner versus exactly. a, uh, a prop. Because the, the, slides will, the slides on the front will give you those high lift capabilities, which uh, when we talk about jets, we'll talk about that a little bit more. Sounds good. Um, so let's switch gears a little bit to infinite flight. Um, Melvin, I know that uh, you had some, some input into the Dash 8 development. Um, you also had uh, somebody else... Uh, Mr. Arjan was in the background there helping you guys out, and I apologize if I'm not pronouncing that name right, but um, in what ways were you guys able to help Matt and Philippe out in the design of the new airplane? I believe uh, Art, being a, a current Q400 pilot, um, definitely 
had a little bit more hands-on experience with uh, the design of the Dash 8. My input is more of controllability, uh, making sure that the airplane flies according to spec, uh, as you would expect the turboprop to fly, and also making that this, making sure the speeds and when the flaps uh, move, making sure that the uh, control inputs that you would see normally actually happen. Um, most of the designing is done by Jarno, and he does an amazing job at uh, designing these airplanes. And oh, I, yeah. I've been blown away by some of the stuff that I've seen them uh, do. But mine is more the technical aspect uh, in terms of performance numbers and also making sure that the airplane just flies like the airplane should fly. And and in terms of performance numbers and stuff like that, and don't answer this if if you're not allowed to answer it, but... Um, where does all of that come from? I mean, you you don't have a Dash 8 manual sitting in front of you, or maybe you do. Uh, no, you are correct. I don't have a Dash 8 uh, manual in front of me. On this Dash 8, or actually the only Dash 8 that FNFLA has done, uh, ARD, I believe, I hope I'm saying this incorrect, uh, provided most of the performance numbers, but I have a few friends that have flown for Lynx Aviation, which okay. is... Uh, the Frontier Airlines former regional before Frontier went through its bankruptcy, uh, so on and so forth. But they were a Q400 operator out of Denver. And talking to my buddies who flew there and also a few buddies who flew at Colgan Airways on the Q400, compiled a lot of uh, feedback in terms of how the airplane flies as well as uh, landing number performance and also takeoff performance and kind of compiled all those things together and Matt and I email back and forth uh, profusely, whether it's about aviation or uh, cars, and we just go on from there. Nice. You've got the inside track. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> All right, well, so... I think, Jason, that's kind of what we were talking about a little bit the other night, um, about how you were asking a question about how um, the difference in how a, a turboprop would accelerate or why it accelerates a little bit slower than what a, a, a jet would do. Yes, exactly. Does that sound about right? Yep. yep. So, and, and Melvin, correct me if I'm wrong, um, which you probably won't need to. Um, <laughs> but, you know, with the blade of a turboprop, like I was uh, explaining, is that that's why it takes a little bit longer to add that power is because it's actually got more drag from the blades. So it's having to spin faster, you know, sp basically work harder to generate that thrust. Whereas a turbofan does not. It's got mo way more blades, smaller blades, uh, within the uh, cowling itself, you know, pushing through the turbine, in, in essence, really. But you've, you've got more drag with the turboprop because of the, uh, of the prop blades, which is why it doesn't actually thrust as quickly as a turb uh, as a jet would. How does that sound to you, Melvin? Sounds pretty good. It's as uh, simple as I could keep it. Awesome. Thanks, Mark. Yep. Well, I try, you know. It's so great to be able to track flights live and find places to open frequencies where the traffic is in infinite flight. Cam is here to tell us a bit more about live flight. I think you pretty much nailed it, Jason. Awesome, but there is more to it than just flight tracking. Indeed. Have you tried flying with a joystick on your iPad yet? The Autonav feature in Connect is pretty sweet too, I must admit. So what's coming next for Life Flight? You'll have to wait and see. 
but let's just say flying on infinite flight will never be the same again. Go and check out what we have out now though, you easily spend countless hours tracking flights in infinite flight live whilst doing some proper joystick flying. Thanks Cam. In the meantime everyone, head over to liveflightapp.com for your next flight. And now Flightcast listeners can receive 10% off live flight t-shirts. Go to shop.liveflightapp.com and use the promo code FLIGHTCAST before March 4th to take advantage of this great offer from Cam. Uh, I want to talk a little bit more about um, prop versus jet in one of our Facebook questions because there was a good one. So uh, we're going to come back to that. But uh, Melvin, as a lot of users switch from flying, uh, let's say, like the the A320 series, A318, 19, to the Dash 8 in a few days, what will they be looking at in terms of needing to know in terms of speed, flap settings, etc. Because I've heard, that's in air quotes, I've heard that you, uh, slowing down, uh, adjusting your autopilot settings and so on is, um, can be much different than when you're used to flying a jet. What tips do you have for our listeners? We, uh, we kind of touched on it earlier in terms of slowing down the, uh, the Dash 8 or ATR, as I was talking about earlier, when you're in level flight, your typical jet, uh, let's use a triple seven, for example, if we're flying 250 knots indicated, it will take us about six miles or 60 seconds to slow from 250 to around 200, 190 knots. Um, and your turboprop, because of the blades and the amount of drag that the blades create when they change pitch when you go to a flight idle position, um, the prop is more likely to slow down faster. So what you'll find is that you'll be able to uh, fly a little bit faster, longer, but higher. So typical flight from, let's say, Seattle to Portland, and you're cruising at 16,000 to 18,000 feet, before, in a jet, around 40 miles from the from Portland, you have to start slowing down, start your descent. Um, ideally, you will want to be around 10,000 feet, 30 miles from the airport. Well, the beauty of the turboprop is that at 20 miles out, you can still be at 16,000 feet and get down faster. Now, I by no means am endorsing uh being 20 miles out from the airport at 16,000 feet it is really <laughs> something that we just have been testing in order to make sure that we are uh, making the numbers match up. But in terms of speeds that you're going to look for, uh, flat 5, 200 knots is going to be the fastest that you're going to want to introduce flat 5. Um, something that you'll see different from a jet, usually a jet is flat 5, flat 10, that's 15 slash 20, and then gear down, versus the turbo prop is flat 5, gear down, then flat 10, flat 15. Uh, flat 15 is going to be your normal landing setting for the Q400. Uh, flat 35 is a special uh, high descent rate, uh, kind of a mountainous terrain setting that is quite often not used on final in this uh, airplane. In terms of landing speeds, your typical uh, turboprop, even though it's heavy, uh, the Q400, I believe, is a 60,000-pound airplane. Um, but you can fly it at 
105 knots if you're light. If you're heavy, you could be flying at 120 knots on final. And even at 120 knots, you're still going pretty fast because the manufacturer will say that around 117 to 118 knots indicated is totally fine, is perfectly acceptable, and that's what they tested too. So you'll find that the Dash 8 just has a lot slower speed settings. Um, it's going to handle a lot slower than your jet. Um, as we talked about earlier, it's going to have more of a, a sport utility vehicle feel where it's kind of heavy, it's rugged, and it's slow. But that's the beauty of the Dash 8 is you can fly slow, you can fly low, and um, for those who like to look at 3D buildings that aren't existent in infinite flight, you can look at all the buildings that you want. <laughs> you can just imagine all those buildings as you fly low and slow. There you go. You heard it there, Mark. He he yeah. he uh, he didn't give you permission in that ex- explanation to call inbound at uh, eighteen thousand feet from five miles out on the ILS. <laughs> <laughs> it is physically impossible. <laughs> That's what we'll hear. Skyhawk heavy. I don't know. I you know I would try to find a way to just kind of do a forward slip. Just slip it say, in from eighteen thousand yeah, feet. Why not? <laughs> it's it's slow, but it's not that slow, Mark. Uh, one well, more thing that I'd like to uh, to add there, Jason and, and Mark, is that the stall characteristics of this airplane are very uncommon from what you see in the jet. Um, this airplane needs speed to fly, so I know that there are those who like to fly tight patterns. I'm one of them, um, and I have become a casualty to not being fast enough, going around that pattern and doing 60 to 90 degree banks. This airplane, because it's a straight wing, uh, it needs a little bit more power uh, in order to create that that lift. Um, as we mentioned earlier, not as much as a swept wing. A swept wing uh, lift capabilities are not as great as a straight wing, but it still needs power to fly and it, it needs speed in order to create lift. So uh, just be careful when you're flying slow um, and you begin banking, you might find that your wing, uh, the bank angle may become greater, and you might not be able to recover unless you're full power. So just make sure that you respect the speeds. Uh, you know, if you're a heavy airplane, obviously your speeds are going to be higher. If you're a lighter airplane, well, your speeds uh, not so much. Okay. Uh, I've and- heard about those tight patterns. I really need to give those a try. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Mark, you're not a you're not a stranger to the tight patterns. <laughs> so, do you feel like through the development, then, uh, well, for both of you, um, as you've been testing, as it do you, do you feel like um, the stall characteristics now that they're pretty much ready to go to market with it are um, pretty true, based on what you just said? I feel like they are uh, from. When I remember flying the ATR, and um, obviously we didn't take the real airplane out and install it, um, we would do it in the simulator. And sure. uh, the stall characteristics of a heavy turboprop are they're not pretty. Uh, the stall characteristics in any airplane are not pretty because essentially airplanes were designed to fly, um, not stall. But in terms of turboprop characteristics, they are a little bit more aggressive. Uh, you're you do have a lag in the turboprop that is not so apparent in a jet. 
uh, Mark touched on it a little bit earlier when he was talking about the props changing pitch and, and things of that nature. So um, it takes a lot more rudder, so to speak, when you get into a stall with the ATR, or not the ATR, I'm sorry, the Dash 8. Um, on the ATR, we nicknamed it Always Trim the Rudder because essentially if you didn't trim the rudder in the ATR, well, the ATR was going to take you for a ride. <laughs> I can imagine that the Dash 8 is the same way, uh, being that the uh, empennage is pretty much the same as a high detail design. So uh, the way that the aerodynamics of the wind affect detail and the controllability are pretty similar, I would imagine. Yeah, but how great would it be and how much fun would it be to enter into a graveyard spiral from a stall and then recover? That would be fun. I'm just saying. <laughs> Mark, why don't you give that a whirl? Do that one video taken, uh, Mark, and uh, I'll watch the video after you're done. Yeah, I'll, I'll record a video of, of a spiral in it, and uh, I'll make sure I'm on free flight so you know I don't get any maneuver violations. You know, Mark, we we haven't uh, I haven't launched my landing contest yet, so maybe that can be maybe if you uh, work on that, that can be one of our challenges. A stall to spiral, got yep. it. I'll work on it. Okay, guys, I do it in the one seventy two. I just I'll have to try it. <laughs> well, we'll have to do your uh, runway switch as well in the one seventy two. The sidestep. Sidestep, yeah. All right, guys, let's go to some Facebook questions from uh, our listeners. Um, Dan wants to know, uh, for Melvin, does a prop have a higher vibration level than a jet engine? And uh, if so, is it more uncomfortable to fly over long periods? It does. Um, if you've ever flown on Piedmont Airlines, if you live in the, in the U.S., um, I know there are a few European airlines that still have the older Dash 8s, the 100s and the 200s, as well as uh, ATR 72s. But especially on the ground, the prop noise and the vibration is a lot uh, greater. It's more apparent in the cabin, especially if it's the first flight of the day where the engines have to be tested out. So uh, the feathering capabilities of the engines will be tested, and you will feel it when the prop changes pitch. Oh yeah, you feel it all uh, right. Oh yeah. Yeah, my my brother lives in uh, Lynchburg, Virginia. So uh, the only way I can fly into there is to go through Charlotte on yes, on what used to be uh, U.S. Air. Yeah, U.S. Airways. So now obviously American, but they've got a lot of um, I think Q two hundreds, one and two hundreds, and I've been on them many times and you feel like the overhead bin is going to come down on your head when they're doing their pre-flight <laughs> that is, checks. That is a really good uh, description. <laughs> uh, one of the things that's different in a turboprop is when you take off the prop uh, percentage or RPM of the prop, it's 100%. So it is full, full bore as, uh, as, much, as much power as you can get in keeping it uh, layman's terms that you can get out of the propeller, so you're getting the max efficiency when you introduce power. Um, this is not always the most comfortable uh, thing in terms of light quality or even sound quality for a passenger. It's loud, it's obnoxious, you can feel the vibration. However, what I do find is that 
when you're in cruise or even um, after pilots go to the climb power, the climb segment, they reduce the, the prop RPM. So usually an APR was uh, 86% or 82%. Um, the Q400, which is so beautiful about the Q, is it has a FADEC or a fully uh, automated um, digital engine control. And what that will do is that when the power is brought back, the FADEC will, through computer, adjust the settings in order to match what's going on with the power. So there's not as much uh, control level moving in terms of the power. But uh, when you go into climb mode or even when you get into cruise mode, the props are synced. And usually they are co-synced. So one is the, the master prop and the other one is the, the slave prop, so to speak. And when you sync them, it becomes whisper quiet because there's no difference in sound pitch and there's no difference in vibration, so it becomes a comfortable ride. But for that initial takeoff, it usually is, is pretty pretty rough. Um, but usually when you're in cruise, it's quiet. It's almost a jet-like feel. And especially with the Q400, the Q400 has a lot of electronic noise dampening technology, um, something that uh, ATR has caught up with with the... ATR-600, but uh, I've ridden on the Q400 on Air Berlin many times going into Nuremberg, and it is whisper quiet. It's actually quieter than riding on a 737. Yeah, I, I've just from watching some YouTube videos of the Q400 versus really almost any other turboprop, the, you notice, um, even if you don't have the sound turned on on your video, you can watch and the pilots will often have, you know, those great big um, headphones that they, you know, Mark, you used to wear on the tarmac, the big, big headsets. David Clarks, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and what you, would, what you would wear in your 172. And these guys in the Q400 aren't, are not. You know, they're wearing those little headsets that you'd, that you'd wear in the, in the 777 or, or in a, a quieter airliner so that right there tells me that they've got a lot a, a, you know a big advantage by flying a aircraft like the q400 in terms of sound and the blades make a huge difference with that where whereas the uh the one and 200 series i believe were all four bladed props the q400 is a six bladed and melvin you and i were talking about this uh a few days ago that um, Northwest Airlink had the Saab 340s, which were all four blades. Uh, they were looking into purchasing the Saab 2000, which was a six-bladed prop. And I was privileged to be able to take a, a ride for the test flight uh, around Memphis, and I was blown away at the difference in the the quietness in the cabin from a four-bladed Saab 340 to the six-bladed 2000. It was just absolutely amazing, and how smooth it was. Jason, hmm. another thing, and um, I apologize for not mentioning it earlier, um, but we were talking about the difference between a turbo pop and, and a jet. Is that the turbo pops tend to fly lower? Uh, your max altitude on a Q400 or even ATR is twenty-five thousand feet. You're not going to see a Q400 at uh, thirty thousand feet. It's not that it doesn't have the capability to get up that high, but it more has to do with uh, pressurization systems and 
uh, the difference in having quick donning masks for depressurization versus, uh, you know, ones that a flight attendant can go on and, and plug in. Um, but one of the effects of being lower is that turboprops generally fly through the weather a lot more. Uh, they're more susceptible to icing. Uh, they're always going around thunderstorms because most of your thunderstorms are going to be between 10 to 20,000 feet. If they're really bad, they're 20 to 30s, but normally don't get much bigger than that. Uh, when you see the 60,000 and 50,000 feet thunderstorms, they're mesotops and there's a lot of other bad stuff associated with that, but uh, turboprops are more susceptible to just all different types of weather, whether it's you know wind shear or icing, as I mentioned earlier, thunderstorms. But also the beauty of it is that they're more they're able to get below the weather faster, and they can see such things as rain shafts and weather lines and avoid them quicker than a jet could, who is relying on their onboard radar. Mm. Okay, nice. A lot of diverting. Okay, so in that, I should say, too, I had, uh, Matt, I had your question all queued up about how loud it is in the cockpit. We kind of covered that. Um, and uh, none of us are, are privileged enough to be flying the Q400, so, which is ultimately the airplane that we're talking about today. So we can't really say, but uh, there you have some of that answer anyway, Matt. Um, Ian is wondering... Uh, where'd you get the call sign heavy driver from? So, of course, my assumption is that it's because you're flying heavy at the moment, but does it go beyond that? <laughs> that's a, that's actually a good question. There's a group of us, uh, probably about 20 or so pilots from my university, and we are all in a group on uh, WhatsApp. It is a communication uh, forum, just like uh, Slack or one of the many other uh, text-type applications. But anyway, my nickname on there is uh, Heavy Metal Mel, and that there's a long story that is appended to that, which I, I won't get into here. But um, Heavy Metal just kind of, uh, the times that I do have upsets, we all crash in FNF flight, I'm not, you know, prone to not crashing just like anybody else. But uh, I didn't want to get the nickname of Bit Metal, so I just uh, <laughs> went with Heavy Driver because essentially when, uh, when we're flying an airplane, it's just like driving a car. And so Heavy Driver just kind of stuck, and uh, it's been a really good name. Uh, of course, we all have impersonators, but it's, uh, it's a fun name, and it, it keeps me grounded, I would say. So. It's a good one, and it's it's nice when you have somebody who uh, you know the the call sign really stands out, and you can uh, I'm uh, as well as many other pilots excited when we get to see your name flash up on the ATC screen. So uh, yeah, that's great. Yeah, I'm not one of those pilots. I'm like great. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go ahead and get a 180 degree vector away from the airport. <laughs> You're a troublemaker. <laughs> Uh, so this is another one where I have to apologize if I'm not pronouncing the name right, but uh, I think it's Surya is asking, which is better, the turboprop or the jet engine in terms of efficiency and fuel consumption? And this is the one that I was kind of referring to earlier in the episode where, um, you know, there are, we wanted to draw some similarities and 
you know, I've done a little bit of reading on the on the Q400 just, you know, because I was excited that we were uh, getting the turboprop. And what they boast about is the fact that they can, um, you know, the Bombardier's uh, saying they will go uh, as fast and be more fuel efficient on short hops as some of their jet counterparts. So that's kind of what they're priding themselves in, uh, among many other things, of course. So, um, Melvin, what can you say to that in terms of uh, efficiency and fuel consumption and all that kind of stuff? You uh, you actually just hit the nail on the head. Um, in terms of if you're talking about shorter legs, I would say turbo pop any given day will outperform a uh, jet in terms of fuel efficiency and fuel consumption. Um, generally, anything around 800 nautical miles, 1,000 nautical miles, I would really say that a turboprop is going to get the max efficiency, is going to have the best cost uh, per average sheet mile or a chasm. Uh, anything beyond that, you're going to probably look at a jet engine more. Uh, the Q400, as you mentioned, is a very fast airplane. If you took a 737 or Airbus A318 and went from uh, New York City down to Charlotte, uh, you're really, if you sent them out at the same time, the Q400 might get there 10 minutes, max 15 minutes after the 737, but in terms of time and fuel consumption, the 737 A318 is going to burn a lot more gas on that short leg versus the Q400. Mm, Okay. Nice. Uh, Mark, do you have anything else for Melvin? Uh, no, no, nothing at all. Um, just excited for the, uh, for the dash to come out. And, you know, like you said, there's going to be, you know, the max ceilings around 25,000. And so I'm, it's going to be fun to see the dash eights, um, being flown at 41, 42. <laughs> Requesting transition. Yeah. It's going to happen. <laughs> Uh, Melvin, anything else you'd like to share with the listeners before we let you go today? Sure. I uh, just would like to say thanks to Matt, Phillip, and uh, the other two devs who I'll keep their names quiet as I know they, uh, they don't like to be in the spotlight as much. But um, they continue to make an excellent sim. I've been working with Matt and Phillip for almost a year and a half, uh, just testing various things and and working on different things, and it's been an absolute blast. Um, and I just ask that the users continue to support this wonderful flight sim, and I guarantee that there will be some awesome things to come in the future. Awesome. Okay, Melvin, thanks so much for chatting with me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Jason, and uh, I can't wait to talk to you again on Flightcast. Sounds good. Thanks to you too, Mark. Oh, not a problem. Always right. a pleasure. We'll talk to you guys later. All right, thank you. Bye-bye. That was Melvin, a.k.a. Heavy Driver, and he joined me from Philadelphia, PA, via Skype. Thanks to Skyhawk Heavy as well for co-hosting today. Before we go, I'd like to get on my soapbox for a minute. This won't apply to most listeners, so most of you can tune out for the next few minutes. What has become increasingly surprising to me is the disconnect in expectations with those wanting Infinite Flight to be a quote-unquote as-close-to-reality-as-possible simulator. Here's what I mean by that. To succeed in life, a person generally has to display a certain amount of professionalism and integrity. I say generally because there are obvious exceptions to this rule. The disconnect comes when someone 
expects realism, but assumes they won't be held accountable for their own actions. For example, it has been made clear since the launch of Live ATC that being a controller is not a right you inherit by having a Live Plus subscription. It's something to be earned, and a certain level of accountability and a quality standard comes with it. So what's my point? My point in saying all of this is that there are those who would think it appropriate and acceptable to make comments in private that would undermine the integrity of the IFATC team, using racist, misogynistic, homophobic, and slanderous language in a private conversation is absolutely your right. But here's where it becomes a serious problem. This community has a lot of well-intentioned people with integrity and a genuine desire to help and improve everyone's overall experience. By contrast, it also has those who are constantly trolling and causing trouble for other users. By associating yourself with these people, you are making yourself vulnerable to that same level of trolling and troublemaking. Anything you say online can be saved forever. And it is often those same people that bounce around from one group to the next, eventually causing enough trouble or offending enough people to the point that they're no longer welcome. Remember that by associating yourself with these types of people, you can become just as guilty. So here's what I say to these people. Apply the same logic to your virtual life that you would in real life. I've heard many times, infinite flight is my life. If that's the case, then for goodness sakes, be professional, act with integrity, and actively treat people with the same level of respect that you would have them show you. Don't be jealous of other people's accomplishments, but instead rise to the occasion and make something of yourself. Earn people's respect and trust. If you don't, Please don't be surprised when you find yourself outside of the community looking in with regret. Eventually, those same people you demanded respect from will tell you that they don't need your, quote, help anymore. And if you look at it objectively, you'll have nobody to blame but yourself. Well, thanks as always for listening. If you haven't already, head over to the App Store or Google Play and download Infinite Flight. For more of the podcast, visit flightcast.audio and be sure to subscribe on iTunes and leave us a great review. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash flightcastaudio and on Twitter at flightcastaudio. If you have any ideas for the show, please leave them in the comments. Flightcast is brought to you by Linkhouse Media on the web at linkhousemedia.com. We can always use your financial support to keep us going, and now a new way to do that is to head over to flightcast.audio slash shop and get your very own Flightcast hat or t-shirt. You can also donate by visiting flightcast.audio and clicking the yellow PayPal button in the sidebar. To cover the fine print, Flightcast is not affiliated with Infinite Flight or Flying Development Studio. I'm Jason Rosewell. Thanks for listening, and happy landings. Happy landings.